Good morning. Thank you, Susie. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It is December 11th, 2018. We are busy, busy. Lots of activities are on the slide, one of which is our intern recruitment day. So we have a group next door that I'm going to go run and uh, say hello to and leave you in the very good hands of Dr. Samantha House, Section Chief of Pediatric Hospital Medicine, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, the Geisel School of Medicine, who is going to introduce our grammar speaker, who she invited all the way from Seattle um, today. So, Sam, take it away. Awesome. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So, can you can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so I am really pleased to welcome Dr. Corey McDaniel, who is coming to see us all the way from Seattle, Washington. Um, she made the cross-country trek yesterday and had no travel delays, which is pretty much a miracle in December. Um, and in typical Hanover fashion, she shared the Boston to West Lebanon flight with five people, two of whom were George and Carol Little. So she's had an opportunity to um, get to know some of our, our former faculty already. Um, Corey has a really very impressive background. She grew up in Kansas and then uh, made her way to Seattle for her undergraduate degree. She got a uh, bachelor's degree in a major I had never heard of, so I'm going to read it to you. Classics with an ancient language and culture emphasis. And I learned last night that her thesis focused on women in medicine in ancient Greece. There were not very many of those women in medicine in ancient Greece. <laughs> Very short thesis, um, and then made her way to the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine, where she got her DO degree in 2010. She then completed her residency and chief residency at Advocate Children's in Illinois before heading back to Washington to begin her career as a pediatric hospitalist. She is now working as a hospitalist at Seattle Children's and at the Providence Health System, and has a particular interest in looking at outcomes of kids hospitalized at community hospitals. Um, she has a very rich academic portfolio, including some work with our own Dr. Lionar and um, Dr. Ralston, who you all might remember. Um, she's looked at topics including direct admission. She's done extensive work in quality improvement, some work on neonatal abstinence syndrome, medical education, pretty much if you can think of it. She's sort of had her hands in it in some way, shape, or form. Um, and this is reflected in her, she had 14 publications when she submitted her CV, but I suspect she probably has more now, which is a testament to how hard she's working and what great work she's doing. Um, she also currently serves as an associate editor for hospital pediatrics, focusing on community hospital work there. Um, and today, Corey's going to be talking to us about a topic that we're both really passionate about called de-implementation. Many of you may not have a definition for that word yet, but you're going to get it very shortly. And basically, she's going to talk about um, how we get people to stop doing things they shouldn't be doing. So with that, I will turn it over to Corey. All right. Well, uh, hopefully I don't put anyone to sleep. It's early in the morning, even earlier for us West Coast people. Um, but Never gonna give you up. This is my ode to Rick Astley for all of you who can remember back to uh, really bad slash fabulous music. Um, I have no disclosures. Uh, so for this talk, this is a picture of Rick Astley as well. I decided not to put up the music video 
but it is quite great. So if you've never seen it, you should YouTube it later. If you're on your phone right now doing that, I won't be offended. Uh, so by the end of this talk, I hope that you're going to be able to define de-implementation, describe how de-implementation is critical to providing value within medicine, and then we're going to discuss through three main challenges and potential first steps in successfully performing de-implementation measures. I also only write objectives that have really nice alliterations for their action verbs. Um, for the agenda today, in order to accomplish all of those things, we're going to talk about overuse and value. We're then going to define de-implementation in the context of behavioral economics. Uh, we're going to discuss the role of de-implementation in hospitalized children, and then I'm going to toss out a few potential suggestions for next steps. So to get us started, uh, we're going to start with overuse and value. So in order to begin to understand de-implementation or to even think about why we should care, we first have to think about value. And in our everyday lives, we think about value all the time, right? We think, is this really expensive bottle of champagne? That much better from the $15 bottle at my drugstore. Are these wonderful, gorgeous, lovely shoes? Uh, worth me picking up an extra moonlighting shift and having to spend a night away from my daughter? Is sending my daughter to an expensive private school going to pay out in the end if she gets into a great university? Or is the stylist down the street who's offering a two-for-one deal really such a good idea? <laughs> and so aside from my silly examples, clearly we think about value within medicine all the time, right? We think about what experiences are our patients having. Uh, we think about outcomes and how can we provide the best outcomes for them. And we think about cost, particularly in the U.S., where our healthcare is extremely expensive. And this equation is essentially exactly how we have traditionally thought about value in healthcare, or patient experience with outcomes over cost and inputs. And if we simplify this even further, uh, most people are familiar with the idea that value is the quality over cost. And we're going to kind of focus in on quality for a minute. So when you have issues with quality within medicine, it pretty much falls in three categories, underuse, overuse, and misuse. And Underuse is this idea that care that has a great evidence base that should be given to a patient because it has clear benefits is not given. So an example of this would be that antenatal steroids for preterm infants has shown to have significant impact in decreasing or improving a fetal lung maturity and thus decreasing chronic lung disease. So uh, if your hospital is not giving antenatal steroids to moms going into prenatal labor, that would be an quality issue of underuse. The flip side of that is misuse. And misuse is when you have complications caused by inappropriately directed care. So an example of this is, you know, specialized beds uh, for patients who are bed bound do not actually prevent pressure ulcers. The only thing that prevents pressure ulcers is moving your child or that patient every few hours in order to prevent the wound. So if you are ordering beds uh, in order to prevent itself to prevent the uh, the development of these ulcers, that would be an issue of misuse. And then we have overuse, which is really kind of what we're going to zoom in on. And overuse is when you have care that's unnecessary or where the risks and harms outweigh the benefits. And this really breaks down into three different categories. We have overutilization, overdiagnosis, and overtreatment. And so 
Why do we care? Why is overuse a big deal? You know, I could spend the entire hour uh, pretty much talking about high value care and value and waste within medicine. But if we go back and we remember the Berwick paper from 2012, we care because overuse accounts for a third of our healthcare spending in this country. We also care because aside from cost, patient experience is directly impacted by overuse. In fact, often overuse is associated with patient harms. And patient harms range from the individual level where you may have effects from disease labeling. Your two-year-old who has, you know, exclusively viral-induced wheezing who gets labeled as asthma and then has to deal with all of the effects of being labeled as asthma, all the way to harms on the healthcare system level where we see that variation leads to excess spending. Within pediatrics specifically, we also have plenty of areas of overuse where the data shows that tests and treatments are ineffective or in fact may even cause harm. And so over the last 15 years or so, uh, there's been an increased focus on reducing this unnecessary and low value care. Um, and so everything from clinical practice guidelines that are making evidence-based recommendations to help practitioners make the best choice that they can with the available evidence, to campaigns like Choosing Wisely uh, that help to develop lists of tests and procedures that providers and patients should question, um, to places like the Lown Institute, which helps to provide educational materials and resources around value for those within healthcare. And yet, despite all of this, we see that change is really hard. Um, efforts to drive change through the facilitation of kind of this bottom-up idea of getting people to change practice is actually not overly effective. Um, these are two papers, one within internal medicine, one within pediatrics, that have recently been published looking at choosing wisely. And both of them essentially find the same thing, that you have some initial impact at the rollout of uh, new recommendations, but that when you look at trends over time, that there's almost no sustained impact. And so why can't we stop doing the things that we know are low value? Don't we all just want to take really great care of kids? So if we pause here for a second and take a step back, we have this whole field within medicine on implementation science. We've got all sorts of things from learning about PDSA cycles to lean methodology to Six Sigma um, to pathways, pathways, and more pathways. <laughs> and historically, uh, implementation science has really focused on improving the uptake of underused evidence-based practices. And so if we have all of these resources and understanding for translating underused evidence into evidence-based practice, and what's so different about overuse? Or another way to think about it is what's so different about stopping a practice from starting it? And the short answer is that in the end, there's some pretty significant differences between implementation and de-implementation. So the first question becomes, well, what is de-implementation, right? We have to be able to understand what that term means when we use it. So de-implementation is the structured elimination of low-value practices not supported by the best available evidence. Um, within 
the literature, as this is kind of a new and evolving term, uh, there are actually a lot of words out there that you will see that are trying to get to this same concept. That includes things like disinvestment or de-adoption, but all trying to promote discontinuing low-value care. And so we're going to talk about now three kind of reasons why tackling overuse and then subsequently de-implementation is challenging. Number one, stopping is not starting in reverse. Number two, overuse outcomes are difficult to define by consensus. And number three, for all, if there's any theory nerds in the, in the room, lack of cognitive models. So to start, stopping is not starting in reverse. So if we venture for a minute into psychological theory, uh, within behavioral economics, there are multiple concepts that help characterize how humans make decisions. And often within medicine, we have this perspective that if we just provide enough education and we make the evidence really clear and maybe by some magical power an order set or a power plan gets created then we're all good doctors we want to do the right thing we're just going to start to make better decisions but what we find instead is that humans actually routinely act illogically and in fact we act predictably illogically to the point that it has this term called predictable irrationality. Um, and we can actually define and frame decisions that we make based upon understanding some of these principles of having predictable irrationality. So within behavioral economics, uh, these concepts range from things like confirmation bias and the endowment effect to action bias and low efficacy states. And so we're going to kind of talk about how these concepts can help us define some of the barriers within de-implementation. Um, so let's think about maybe how this may play out in real life within medicine. Um, so we interviewed some high performers in two national quality improvement projects focused on bronchiolitis and pneumonia. Um, both of these projects had specific measures that required practitioners to go through a de-implementation process. And we wanted to understand from this top quartile of high performers what the intent um, of understanding, or with the intent, excuse me, of understanding this emotional and cognitive experience of being successful with de-implementation. So we used a conceptual framework from behavioral economics, conducted some semi-structured interviews, and really used a combination of both inductive and deductive thematic analysis. So if we look at the measures quickly for both of these projects. So for bronchiolitis, uh, the de-implementation measure was to reduce or reduce use of routine albuterol for children presenting to the hospital with bronchiolitis. For pneumonia, it was slightly different. It was to reduce the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics while promoting the use of narrow-spectrum antibiotics. So for bronchiolitis, it really was a cease and desist, i.e. just stop doing this. Um, for pneumonia, it was an exchange. Instead of giving ceftriaxone, give a narrow-spectrum antibiotic like ampicillin. Within the top quartile of participants, we had 19 eligible sites within bronchiolitis 
and 23 eligible sites in pneumonia. And so when we looked at the data, what we found are examples of these predictably irrational concepts start to come through. So the first one is confirmation bias. And confirmation bias occurs when people seek out um, or evaluate information in a way that fits with their existing beliefs, i.e., I'm going to analyze a data based on what I already want to see within that data. So others just don't believe the new data. Their clinical experience tells them differently, and they frankly said, that won't change. I've been practicing medicine for 30 years, and this is what I do, and this is what works. We also saw examples of the endowment effect. And endowment effect is essentially this idea that we place a greater value upon something that we have purely because we have it. Uh, this stems from the underlying issue of what's called loss aversion. And loss aversion means that it's actually considered twice as painful psychologically to lose something that you have than to gain something that you never had. And so we want to hold on to the things that we have. So if you were doing something that you thought was right in your mind, and then you have to stop doing it, you get this feeling like, oh my gosh, I did something wrong. And you don't want to admit that because we're all type A personalities and we're always right and that's just how it is. The next principle we saw come through is this idea of cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is the concept that it's hard to hold conflicting beliefs at one time about something that you're trying to do. And that having to change your behavior is uncomfortable and often makes you defensive. So as physicians, if you introduce a change that's new to them or they haven't seen it before, they're not used to doing it that way. And so they're gonna question, question, question first. And then their default button is to say, well, you know, that's how I was taught. We gave albuterol and it has worked in the past. The next thing we saw was this idea of action bias. And I think especially as physicians, we uh, experience and are actually trained to want to do something, right? We see a problem, we want to intervene. You want to resolve the stress uh, that comes from having a lack of control or being able to solve an issue in front of us. Um, and so as an ED physician, you've got to do something, whether giving an IV, giving a chest X-ray, or giving a treatment to see what happens in the next 10 minutes. And then lastly, there's this idea of what we are calling a low efficacy state. And it, interestingly, the cost of being logical is actually quite significant. It involves an investment of time and mental resources to make a choice that's logical. And thus, in situations where it's actually of a relatively low cost to an individual to make a change, i.e. there's not much investment for them to do it, we want to default to what is simple or what is easy or what we're used to doing. So I remember hearing, I just went with giving ceftriaxone. It was easier. Or I forgot. I guess occasionally I would hear, I wasn't thinking about it or it was 2 a.m. And so these theoretical concepts all tie into why stopping is harder uh, than starting something new psychologically. And if we think about that, that then transitioned us into our next uh, point as to why tackling outcomes is difficult and or why tackling overuse is challenging. And our second point is that overuse outcomes are often difficult to define by consensus. So 
what do I mean by this? Well, there's a growing recognition within healthcare improvement research that while intuitive solutions uh, may be effective in some cases, they're often limited in scope and generalizability. So if we go back to underuse for a moment, it's actually more straightforward to articulate a theory of change because the outcomes for underuse are much more clear. So uh, we know that if you provide books for children, either in a hospital setting or in an outpatient office setting, that that improves childhood literacy, which ultimately has impacts on childhood health. Um, and in this scenario, you could do some PDSA cycles, write out an FMEA, um, all to facilitate change of internal thinking to explicit thinking. And so your outcomes are much more clear. For overuse, similarly, we need really clear outcomes, but getting to that is often much more vague. So if we take a project that is potentially looking at obtaining blood cultures in pneumonia, um, the number of blood cultures obtained is going to be a really clear uh, value to measure. But determining who it's necessary for and who it's unnecessary for may be much less clear as to is this actually necessary for this patient? And how do we balance the trauma or the harm of actually obtaining that outcome? And this gets trickier. So what if your objective is to facilitate more informed decision-making on the part of a parent around an intervention that brings significant benefits, but also maybe significant harms? What if that is a 30-day-old infant who's well-appearing but has a fever, and now you're discussing with the family about obtaining a lumbar puncture? These challenges become difficult because they're differences of opinion that constitutes benefits or harms, and how do you balance and trade them off against each other? Often what this boils down to is individual clinician bias, uh, individual clinician risk tolerance, and how a given provider interprets the literature. And so if individual bias and tolerance is what is driving uh, the definition of an outcome, then making a system-level improvement or change in that becomes highly problematic. And we see this uh, within our own data as well. So it can be hard to get consensus in areas that are either not one expert opinion, there's nothing out there, or there's multiple different opinions. And then lastly, I'm going to touch really briefly on a lack of cognitive models. So within implementation science, uh, we have frameworks that utilize and inform interventions all the way from the very beginning through the end. It's kind of soup to nuts as far as frameworks and conceptual models for implementation science. Um, the K2A, which is applying action to applying knowledge to action, uh, helps to take translational research and apply it to evidence-based practice, all the way through evaluation frameworks like re-aim that help you determine if your uh, implementation measures have been a success. And so they've got this whole uh, scope of implementation frameworks that can help you when you are creating a project to know that I'm doing this in a way that is going to have measurable impacts. Within de-implementation, uh, we essentially have crickets. We have one published study protocol. We don't even have the published framework yet within medicine. Um, and in fact, when we look at grants provided within implementation science within the last 10 years, um, there, this article reviewed 542 grants for implementation science, 
20 were on D implementation and two were on D implementation within pediatrics. And so we really have not much out there. And if there's only two that have been funded for pediatrics in the last 10 years, it really starts to beg the question, why should we care about de-implementation within pediatrics? So let's pause for a second and think about then de-implementation for hospitalized children. So a bit about pediatric hospitalizations. This is mildly old data from 2012, but we know about a third of patients uh, that are hospitalized are hospitalized at freestanding children's hospitals. Um, about one in five are at children's hospitals within general hospitals. And then about half are at community hospitals or general hospitals that have licensed pediatric beds, either on a mixed adult peds unit or on a special uh, assigned unit. And if we look at the epidemiology of pediatric admissions, and this is actually work done by Joanna Lyonar out of here, um, we can see that the range of the most common uh, diagnoses for which children are admitted to the hospital through medical admissions, mental health, and surgical. And if we take these diagnoses and we look at them individually, pretty much each and every one of them has one, if not more, published recommendations to help eliminate or reduce low value practices, spanning the entire list. Um, and so pretty much the bottom line is that for every condition that we care for in any volume uh, for pediatric hospital admissions, regardless of your institutional size, that there are some sort of recommendation for reducing low-value care. Now, there is good work being done out there. Um, clearly, there's a lot of people that are thinking about quality and trying to improve quality of care for hospitalized children. And these two graphs are from the bronchiolitis and the pneumonia projects that I referenced earlier. And the top one is the reduction of albuterol use, um, A being in the ER, B being on the inpatient setting. And the bottom one is increasing your uh, Narrow-spectrum antibiotic use for simple community-acquired community pneumonia, which was the opposite of then decreasing uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, so people are thinking about and trying to do good work within this space. And there's a lot of creative thought that is happening uh, to attempt to bring better understanding to de-implementation as well. Like, can we take implementation models that are already out there and appropriate them so that we can then revise and apply them uh, to de-implementation? But the problem with stopping a practice is that requires a change of habit. And the risk with changing habits like we all know, is that you may want to eat more veggies and eat less donuts. You know that veggies are healthier for you, and you maybe through sheer willpower abstain from donuts for two weeks, but that does not mean that you've actually made a lifestyle change. And we see the same thing within de-implementation within medicine. So our group lead was definitely one of the first people to backslide once we were no longer collecting the data. So how do we move forward? 
Well, the good news is we all want to take great care of kids. And beyond that, we want to take the evidence and apply it appropriately to practice. And we want to incorporate our patients and their values and what they want. And we essentially are trying to provide what Kleinert defined as right care in the article published in Lancet in 2018. And so I'm going to propose essentially five preliminary suggestions for tackling the psycho-emotional aspects of de-implementation. And these include reframing the change, creating a community, giving permission, minimizing individual identity, and making predictions. And so reframing the change, what do I mean by that? This is the whole idea of reducing and replacing. So you're providing an exchange. So that, that action bias that we talked about of like, I need to do something, you can still do something. You're just not going to do the thing you were doing before. So instead of don't use steroids and albuterol and bronchiolitis, it becomes do nasal suction, do provide hydration. <laughs> say, hey, instead of doing chest x-rays or testing, let's see what happens. Let's observe them. Let's see how their oxygen saturations do overnight. We're showing that supportive management is action too. The next thing that I'm going to propose is this idea of creating a community. So really the whole driving factor behind creating a community is to help ease the cognitive dissonance and those low efficacy states by promoting what becomes a new social norm. It's just what people do now. We used to do this one thing. Now everyone else is doing this other thing. And we know with an implementation science that partnering across silos helps to promote that new social, that new, sorry, social norm. Um, whether that's silos between physicians, interdisciplinary silos, getting your RTs, your nurses, um, everyone on board for whatever your change is going to make. Uh, borrowing authority is this idea that sometimes uh, thinking about whatever you are doing in your own institution outside of the context of your institution provides additional legitimacy. So participating in you know, national collaboratives helps to give some legitimacy to we're not the only ones trying to make this change. Everyone else is doing this too. Again, that establishment of the social norm. And then this idea of group norming uh, and or shaming, which I like to think of is kind of like peer pressure for adults. This is what everyone else is doing, so you should do it too. So when we presented to the ED physicians, I joked with them saying that you guys are doing something right because you're getting 100%. But that's 100% in not the right area because anyone could walk in with a cough and congestion and get a chest x-ray. So they were able to reduce that from almost 100% to 20%. Next is this concept of giving permission. So decreasing the cognitive load for decisions to not do something. Again, this helps to target this action bias and the endowment effect. Um, I can see that they gave them some freedom to say, I know when to choose ceftriaxone and when not to choose it, so that you still have the opportunity to do something. You're giving permission as to when to do the previous action that you had been doing before. Next is the idea of minimizing individual identity. So the more that you consider an issue part of your identity, the more painful it is to change it. And thus, 
increasing the cost and worsening the chances of a logical evaluation. We talked earlier about how um, using logic is actually a lot of work, takes a lot of mental energy. And so what we see and saw a lot within quotes that fell within the endowment effect is that people felt that by updating or changing the practice that they were doing, that maybe they learned in residency and training or were taught by mentors and people that they respected, that it felt like they were betraying those people or the legitimacy of that relationship and mentorship. And so by minimizing that, you can actually help people separate the emotional experience that they had with maybe that mentor or that really great teacher, but and still value that previous experience, but update their practice. So what I would say in response, the smart people at the institution that you trained to do it this way when they taught you 10 years ago, you know what? They're doing it this way now. And they're really smart. They're still just as smart as they were 10 years ago when they taught you to do it the other way. And then lastly, it's this concept of making predictions. So this is one of the hardest things because like we talked about within de-implementation, um, our outcomes are often a little bit fussy, but using your data and defining your balancing measures specifically becomes really critical. And why? Because you can make your data show anything and potentially showing a decrease in broad spectrum antibiotics, for example, may not be enough. Instead, you also need all of those balancing measures that are showing no readmissions, no representations with complicated pneumonias, episodes of representations with sepsis. Um, and so this data is a huge piece in both implementation and de-implementation, but it's a particular way that can help target those low efficacy states and confirmation bias. So every month for the staff meeting, I would show our bronchodilator use was 50% last year, and now we're down to 10%. So it's very visible to see, wow, this is making a difference. But on the flip side, it's not making a huge difference in our hospital length of stay, our PICU admissions, or our readmits to the hospital. And so it's unlikely that any of these suggestions in isolation is going to achieve any significant impact. In fact, we see in QI that often sites will inherently or intuitively apply one or two of these. But combined, potentially we may be starting to see the formation of a preliminary model for tackling the psycho-emotional components of de-implementation. So what are our next steps? So next steps, number one, is to continue to expand research at non-freestanding children's hospitals. Why? Because we know that that's where the majority of children are being cared for almost 70 plus percent. Um, and as such, uh, we have a responsibility to include those kids in the research that's being done. Plus, we need to de-implement many of these same measures, uh, regardless of the institution you're at. Next, we need a better understanding for why de-implementation measures are often not obtained and or sustained. And in order to do that, just like within implementation science, there's all the frameworks that help you go from one end of the spectrum all the way through evaluation. We need these same frameworks for de-implementation. And we may have maybe the start of a handful of them, but we need those to be much more developed, tested, and then validated. 
And I spoke really fast, so thank you. <laughs> Questions? Um, thank you. This was a wonderful talk and very pertinent to something that I'm working on. And my question is, there's one barrier that I thought about that, to de-implementation that you didn't have on your list, which is money. So that when you're de-implementing something, particularly if it's a procedure being done or you're trying to de-implement it, the person who's been doing that procedure is going to make less money. And I wondered if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a, there's, I imagine actually a whole host of infrastructure slash structural things um, that also influence de-implementation. Um, we had specifically looked at some of those psycho-emotional things, um, but you know, as we shift more and more to a value reimbursement system, um, potentially maybe some of that will be mitigated, but I think that is, it's certainly a huge issue. And you know, when you break down Overuse physician waste um, is certainly a significant portion of that. Yeah. So, so just in addition to that, like the money piece is interesting. The other thing that's out there is that these proceduralists—that not only are they getting paid that way, but it's actually their professional identity. So when you—I mean, I think the reimbursement structure is really important to getting that down. But there's all—I mean, the, the psycho-emotional piece plays into that as well. They've built an entire career doing this procedure, and to say that it's no longer Thank you. That was really fantastic. Somebody, and I think Sam and I um, often overlap in our de-implementation strategies from her from an inpatient setting and me from an outpatient setting. We're currently struggling with influenza testing and Hamilton administration. Um, with the challenges that organizationally, we've had mixed messages coming down from our organization or even from national organizations like the CDC, which suggests that we should be doing more influenza testing, giving more Tamiflu, despite the fact that Tamiflu actually only reduces illness by 23 hours, and in asthmatic patients, it didn't even reduce symptoms more than 10 hours, and it didn't decrease length of stay or admissions at all. So when we're getting these big infrastructure over us, suggesting that we need to be doing something for those of us who are on the ground and trying to teach our residents and our trainees evidence-based medicine and de-implementation. It's really tough, and I'm wondering if you can comment on some of those kind of overarching organizational challenges. Yeah, I think that goes back to the exact point that overuse outcomes are really hard to reach consensus on because it comes down to the fact that you may have conflicting evidence or you may have conflicting authoritative bodies that are giving you different things. And so, so much of it boils down to how are you as an individual reading the literature? How are you risk tolerant? What are your biases? What is the, you know, that one anecdote experience that is now shaping um, how you're making decisions? Um, and so I think within that then it's our responsibility to teach our trainees, not necessarily that this is the law. And I think that's why we have, why we see at least within some of our interviews that people feel this like 
I'm betraying how I was trained because they were taught like this is the right way to do it. And instead, we need to be helping our trainees learn that medicine is dynamic and changing and new evidence is coming out. And so what I'm teaching you right now is the best that I can do with what I've got and what the literature and evidence shows. But that in two years and five years and 10 years is certainly likely going to be different. And teaching that kind of cognitive resilience to our residents, I think be, is really where like the rubber meets the road on trying to navigate these sometimes very gray areas. Can I follow up a question, please? Um, then how do we also um, affect our families that we care for? Again, taking flu as an example, if they come in and see either me in the outpatient setting or Sam in the inpatient setting, if we're both minimalist, Talking through them, but then they go down to the local urgent care center where they get a few tests of Tamiflu, and then they call and say, "Wait, the three other kids also need Tamiflu as well. How do we?" So that de-implementation. That's a great question. Yeah, no, I think that is really one of the like hardest challenges um, because. You know, we can talk about this from an intellectual standpoint, but in the end, um, it's our families that are really affected by us providing low-value care. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot more time to educate a family on why you aren't doing something than to just do it. Um, and I didn't get into all of that in some of the examples I provided quote-wise, but actually we hear that a lot, that like time is a really big deal, either time in the office, time in the ED, time on the inpatient setting, is that, you know, to navigate the fact that, okay, I'm going to have to sit down and un like help a family un-understand what they previously did so that now they can understand it and frame shift is really hard. And when you have, you know, like you've gone through, let's say you've spent a lot of time with a family explaining why you're not giving Tamiflu and then they take their kid down the road and get flu swab and Tamiflu, um, it becomes challenging, I think, to have those ongoing discussions. And I don't have an easy way around it other than to continue to have the discussions. I just want to um, ask you to dig a little bit deeper, and this is great talk about educating our residents. A little bit earlier, the culture that we have for our medical students mm -hmm. is not, they don't feel rewarded when they say, I don't know. Even though you just made the case that some of the stuff we don't know. Um, you know. We don't reward humility. What we reward is certainty. We ask our medical students, what's the right treatment for this? Um, can you comment on how we move that humility mm -hmm. earlier in our medical education and sort of take that in and also recognize that um, our students are being educated not only by pediatricians but also by surgeons? So. <laughs> 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 So to keep carrying off this file, I mean, we have opportunity for others in the room also to suggest answers, so that it's not just, it's not just ping pong, but I will invite you to also consider, and Don, for you to consider, not just what we do in medical school, what do we recruit for? We recruit for people who get answers right all the time. Success in SATs to get into the best colleges, success on the NCAT to get into medical school. We recruit people who are only happy. 
I would just say that I think that starts with us. We have to role model that humility. We have to show them that like when I don't know something, I'm going to vocalize that to my team and then show them how maybe I'm going to find that out and look that up or whatever it may be. Um, but I think moving that earlier within training starts actually with those of us already practicing. Um, and <clears throat> I would think that we have to role model that humility first if we want them to do it. Where that um, falls sort of on our shoulders, ultimately, if we decide not to do something or to start to shift um, how we implement things, um, and so I get concerned either from you know others in the institution or from a family perspective that they feel like that will come back in a way that's harmful for, for everyone. So that's definitely. Yeah, I think that the fear of being sued um, or some form of litigation is a legitimate fear that is more prevalent in certain specialties than others. So, for example, ED docs um, in general, I think, have a higher stress level around litigation than most practicing pediatricians do. Um, as historically... Uh, errors of commission um, are easily more palatable than errors of omission, um, meaning that if you don't do something, uh, we, we don't get called to the table for it as much, um, but that if you do, that it, it somehow reflects like you were a bad doctor um, versus if you did 1,200 tests that were unnecessary, um, at this current point, nobody's calling you to the table as much, but I think that that will change. I think as we look over the next 10 years, we're going to see the landscape around that change. Um, and so I think that while that fear is probably legitimate, um, I think we'll start to see it shift. I don't know. If, I'm not totally sure if that's the best answer, but. <laughs> I think that, um, well, I think a handful of things. First of all, it's from the like patient family perspective. You know, I referenced very briefly the Kleinert definition of kind of right care. And essentially, we, when we talk about value, we talk about, you know, high value care versus low value care. And 
the climate argument is all that like what we really should be doing is just providing the right care that high value care is right care and that involves incorporating the patient and family perspective and values into that um balanced with costs and you know other outcome quality things that we're trying to involve as well uh, and that in doing that <clears throat> there are situations then that potentially a lower value test when incorporated with you know family perspectives and values may be a like the right test to do um, in the same way that maybe there are high value things that when incorporated with the family's perspectives or values may not be the right thing to do um, and so I think from that angle, uh, patient and family values becomes actually really central to this discussion around value and providing value within medicine. Um, as far as kind of the reporting of wastes, um, it gets it gets sticky. Uh, and so it's really hard to do it on like an individual level because you can argue pretty much any time, like let's say you get a whole bunch of CDCs. And I think all those CBCs are unnecessary, but you could go through each one and maybe make a case for why you needed that CBC. I was concerned about X or I was thinking about Y at the time, right? And so reporting overuse um, is often very vague and hard to define. And I think, like, yeah. but, I mean, I think this is where, I think this is where measuring variation helps too, right? Mm -hmm. So like we're working I think cost also, you know, with we know that financial toxicity uh, on the patient level um, within the adult literature is fairly well described um, that it can be like healthcare utilization and hospitalization particularly is really expensive. Um, and there's actually some really interesting chemo literature on the adult side around essentially the cost of cancer and how that can be devastating for uh, individuals and families. On the pediatric side, we have much less data. Um, Jimmy Beck published a study just at, in pediatrics that came out in September that is really one of the first 
pediatric like parent cost studies. Um, and he collaborated with a researcher out of Stanford as well that they are working on publishing a secondary follow-up to that. Um, that essentially shows that cost for pediatrics is hard. Like parents want to talk about it and we don't hardly ever talk about cost, but they only want to talk about it at certain times. You know, like if my kid's really sick, I don't necessarily like cost is maybe not the first thing on my mind, right? Like I want you to do whatever you need to do to take care of my really sick kid. Um, and so that, that dynamic within pediatrics, we're still very much starting to explore and understand. Um, but the financial toxicities are, are a real thing. Well, uh, I have thought since medical school that there should be information at the time of placing an order about the cost. It seems to me, with all our sophisticated technology, it would really not be that hard for our IT folks to put the charge next to the order, which would at least add a perspective of how much benefit am I going to get by ordering this as compared to how much of a burden am I imposing on my patient and society for doing so? Back when I was in private practice up north with a lot of self-insured patients, I had to be prepared to justify the expense of any given test that I wanted them to get. Seems to me we've lost I think that's a really good point. I think part of what we run into on the inpatient side um, is that often, at least at Seattle Children's, like we don't know what somebody's insurance status is. And if you're not having to pay out of pocket in that moment for it, or you know you're going to get an out of pocket bill, your investment in caring is much different. Um, and so on the provider end, if our patients aren't asking for it, the motivation behind change for that can be challenging, other than just our general gestalt of wanting to provide less expensive care. I was taught that uh, we didn't have um, a concern about someone's insurance because that might influence the quality of our care. I think that argument is totally bogus. You have to be concerned with someone's finances when you're ordering these so the, the, the problem is, if you you don't really know what an individual is going to pay because the insurance is going to shave whatever the charge was, but your point is well taken. I, I, there have been pilots of institutions that have done that, have had to charge within the EMR And this is a good argument for a single You can actually make that argument. <laughs> that I don't know the answer to. I would imagine that, you know, you think about carrots and sticks, trying to convince people to do things because it's the right thing versus beating them over the head to do it because they're going to get punished. Um, 
usually negative motive, like within psychology, negatively motivated, negatively motivated behaviors um, are effective for a period of time, but have issues with unsustainability. So. I think this issue of confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance is fundamental. It's a fundamental problem because for most people, if they're doing a procedure regularly and they have few complications, even if you show them a paper that says this procedure has a lot of complications, the response is going to be, I do this procedure all the time. And I don't have to see the patient. Yeah. This doesn't actually happen. They, they see what they want to see in that literature base because of this psychology. Yeah. Sometimes it does work. There's a famous case where it's called the ECIC bypass. Um, neurosurgeons are connecting the external carotid to the internal carotid to improve um, vascular flow for dizziness and stroke risk. Um, and we had neurosurgeons doing a lot of them here. Um, a definitive paper was published in the New England Journal, and the use of that uh, that procedure stopped immediately all around the country. Um, so then there are examples when it, when it, it does work, but, but it, I was going to say, it also probably took a lot of evidence and a, a very expensive study in order to get a definitive New England Journal publication that led to such an impact. It's that there's not, you can't just convince people to do it, right? Uh, we talked about like predictably irrational and you can't just use logic over and over and over, present how you view the evidence over and over and over, make it very clear, put together nice PowerPoints, convince people to stop doing things because that doesn't work. Um, and so I think it takes time. It takes relationships. Um, and, and I think the more informed and like understanding of the literature that you bring into a given situation that helps you separate your individual identity from, you know, we talked about minimizing the individual identity. It helps you separate yourself from that so that you can be flexible as the literature changes. And that, again, I think helps role model for someone else. <laughs> okay. Thank you.